Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. And uh, when, when the engines light, they're 300 feet below you. And, and if you're out in the crowd, it's big, loud noise, shockwaves. But you're up here, you don't hear that. <laughs> you got a headset on and you're talking. <laughs> it, it increases a little bit. Now, when the three of us started talking about what the liftoff was like, we all three concluded that the exact moment of leaving the ground was not that discernible, except for the countdown. That was Buzz Aldrin describing his launch experience on Apollo 11. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 205 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Module Pilot, Buzz Aldrin, Part 2. Here's the remainder of Aldrin's Apollo 11 launch experience clip. The most dangerous part uh, of that launch is going sideways and crashing into the tower. Because it's a big, big boom, and uh, you may not be able to get away from it in time. So when the rocket clears the tower, that's the point where the control from uh, the launch pad, Kennedy Space Center, the control of the spacecraft is switched over to mission control in Houston once they pass the tower clear. Last week, we paused the biography of Buzz just after he returned from Apollo 11. Unfortunately, Buzz's life took a turn for the worse shortly after he emerged from quarantine and began months of public appearances. Just as Buzz had anticipated, he was uncomfortable with the spotlight and the role of public relations spokesman for NASA. Well, when the three of us came back from a... Uh, 45-day trip around the world, stopping at different places, kings and queens and prime ministers. Uh, We came back and had uh, dinner in the White House. And the president uh, said, well, what do you guys want to do now? He said, Mike, I know you've been talking to uh, Secretary Rogers about the State Department. And uh, Neil said, well, I want to uh, uh, work on aero." aeronautics, airplane flying, and the work that NASA would be doing. And I said, well, I, I want to really return back to the service that I was in, the Air Force. And um, I became the first uh, astronaut that did go back. Uh, now quite a few of them do, uh, and it's been rewarding, so not, not in my case, but... Uh, 
1971, after a period of working on the space shuttle program, Aldrin decided to leave NASA to resume his Air Force career. He had hoped to be named Commandant of Cadets at the Air Force Academy. Instead, after a 10-year absence from active duty, he was thrust into command of the Test Pilot School at Edwards. Aldrin, a non-test pilot with no managerial experience, found himself unable to perform up to his own high standards. His self-esteem was eroded. Within a year, he was hospitalized for depression. Aldrin, who had spent his life striving for almost superhuman achievement, faced a devastating reality. He was sick and he needed help. Two years later, in 1973, Aldrin described his struggles against manic depression and alcoholism in a confessional autobiography called Return to Earth. By going public in 1973, and in the process debunking the myth of the perfect astronaut, Aldrin won himself both praise and criticism, but he was determined to tell the world what he went through, and to let others with similar problems know that they have company, even among men who walked on the moon. In doing so, he communicated his own humanity. In the book, Return to Earth, Aldrin charted a number of factors, including his own relentless drive for achievement, spurred by an intense and driven father. There had been other cases of depression in his family, and today Aldrin believes that given his family environment, coupled with his own personality and possibly a genetic predisposition to the disease, he would have probably become an alcoholic late in life even if he had not gone to the moon. Instead, the crisis was accelerated by the double jeopardy that many returning moon voyagers faced. The sudden onslaught of world attention followed almost immediately by the end of their astronaut careers. Aldrin, more than his colleagues, felt the loss. When Apollo 11 ended, so did his sense of purpose. That only made the hero's mantle harder to wear. And when he retired from the Air Force in 1972, he lost the ordered life he had thrived on since 1947, when he entered West Point. Without that structure, Aldrin says, his struggle only became more difficult. As he told an interviewer in 1993, quote, There I was, introverted, supersensitive, a perfectionist, concerned about what people thought of me. It was a setup. No wonder I was in trouble. End quote. Aldrin's life improved considerably when he recognized and sought treatment for his problems. By 1984, Aldrin's recovery was long completed. He had gone six years without a drink. His depression was under control, but somehow a new purpose eluded him. The years at MIT and NASA, when he helped pioneer techniques for space rendezvous, were still a bright memory. Sometimes, looking into the shaving mirror, he told himself he would probably never experience that kind of creativity again. But Aldrin was wrong. That year, 1984, he found inspiration in the intricate rhythms of orbital mechanics. This time, his innovation was called the Cycler, 
a spacecraft that, if placed on the proper trajectory, would circle continuously between the Earth and Mars, ferrying astronauts and cargo with little need for fuel. Aldrin's system of cycling spacecraft, in theory, would take about five and a half months to make the journey from Earth to Mars, and a return trip to Earth of about the same duration on a twin cycler. Soon Aldrin was hard at work developing the cycler concept, along with ideas for an Earth orbit spaceport. By returning to the activity that gave him the most happiness, using his creative powers to advance space exploration, Aldrin had rediscovered his calling. Here's Aldrin explaining the cycling. Uh, cycling pathways for Occupy Mars. And that year-by-year evolutionary steps at intermediate objectives, maybe an asteroid, maybe fly by Venus. Other people are doing things at the moon. We're developing refueling so that we can uh, be able to put things on the surface of Mars from the moon of Mars and then eventually uh, go and land. So it's a step-by-step. Well, it, uh, it still starts off kind of slow. Um, but we're really not ready to put a lot of money into it. Uh, uh, I hope that that we can begin to build up that financial support to be able to design efficient rockets and spacecraft that, that really are needed. In 1985, Aldrin, a proponent of education, joined the University of North Dakota's College of Aerospace Sciences at the invitation of John Odegaard, the dean of the college at the time. Aldrin helped to develop the university's space studies program and brought Dr. David Webb from NASA to serve as the department's first chair. Now, moving on to the 21st century. Aldrin was involved in a rather odd incident on September 9, 2002. He was lured to a Beverly Hills hotel on the pretext of being interviewed for a Japanese children's television show on the subject of space. When he arrived, Apollo conspiracy proponent Bart Cybrell accosted him with a film crew and demanded he swear on a Bible that the moon landings were not faked, insisting that Aldrin and others had lied about walking on the moon. After a brief confrontation in which Cybrell called him a coward and a liar, Aldrin punched Cybrell in the jaw, which was caught on camera by Cybrell's film crew. The police determined that Aldrin was provoked, and no charges were filed. Aldrin dedicates a chapter to this incident in his autobiography, Magnificent Desolation. No stranger to controversy, in December 2003, Aldrin published an opinion piece in the New York Times criticizing NASA's objectives. In it, he voiced concern about NASA's development of a spacecraft limited 
to transporting four astronauts at a time with little or no cargo-carrying capability, and declared the goal of sending astronauts back to the moon was more like reaching for the past glory than striving for new triumphs. Here's a 2016 clip of Buzz expressing his views on how we got to our present state with space exploration. In 1969, July, we landed, and then they had a space task group do some studies, and uh, they looked at three levels of intensity. And uh, the highest intensity, they felt we could get to Mars in the, sometime in the 80s, 1980s. And the slowest would still get to Mars before the year 2000. Well, that was a very optimistic uh, study, but, but there was that focus on Mars as early as that. And it has been the ultimate objective for, I don't know, five presidents now. Mm. But there hasn't been the steps leading to that that make it a firm decision that's what we're going to do. Now, um, of course, that was a great rocket. Um, personally, I think it, it was better than the rocket that is being worked on now to be the rocket to take us to Mars. Um, uh, but there's been a lot of shifting around. Uh, we, we felt we needed to do something that was reusable. And there was a study to make quite an advanced reusable two-stage that was canceled, and then we rushed into the shuttle design and uh, perhaps in retrospect skipped a few things because we had the crew and the cargo in one big airplane. So there's no way to separate the crew except to take the whole airplane with you. And uh, that was decided not the thing to do after the uh, accident board. So we, uh, by that time, we'd begun putting up a space station, had some place to go. In 2005, Buzz was involved in another minor controversy. While being interviewed for a documentary titled First on the Moon, The Untold Story, Aldrin told an interviewer that they saw an unidentified flying object on Apollo 11. Aldrin told David Morrison, a NASA Astrobiology Institute senior scientist, that the documentary cut the crew's conclusion that they were probably seeing one of the four detached spacecraft adapter panels. Their S-4B upper stage was 6,000 miles away, but the four panels were jettisoned before the S-4B made its separation maneuver so they would closely follow the Apollo 11 spacecraft until its mid-course correction. When Aldrin appeared on the Howard Stern show on August 15, 2007, Stern asked him about the supposed UFO sighting. Aldrin confirmed that there was no such sighting of anything deemed extraterrestrial and said 
they were and are 99.9% sure that the object was the detached panel. Interviewed by the Science Channel, Aldrin mentioned seeing unidentified objects and according to Aldrin, his words were taken out of context. He asked the Science Channel to clarify to viewers he did not see an alien spacecraft, but they refused. In a C-SPAN interview in 2009, Aldrin referred to the Phobos monolith, saying, quote, We should go boldly where man has not gone before. Fly by comets, visit asteroids, visit the moons of Mars. There's a monolith there, a very unusual structure on this potato-shaped object that goes around Mars once in seven hours. When people find out about that, they're going to say, Who put that there? The universe put it there? If you choose, God put it there? End quote. In 2009, Aldrin commented on climate change by saying, quote, I think the climate has been changing for billions of years. If it's warming now, it may cool off later. I'm not in favor of just short-term isolated situations and depleting our resources to keep our climate just the way it is today. I'm not necessarily of the school that we're all causing it all. I think the world is causing it. End quote. In 2012, Aldrin commented on the death of his Apollo colleague Neil Armstrong saying that he was deeply saddened by the passing. Quote, I know I am joined by millions of others in mourning the passing of a true American hero and the best pilot I ever knew. I had truly hoped that on July 20th, 2019, Neil, Mike, and I would be standing together to commemorate the 50th anniversary of our moon landing. Regrettably, this is not to be, end quote. In June of 2013, Aldrin wrote another opinion published in the New York Times supporting a manned mission to Mars and which viewed the moon not as a destination but more of a point of departure, one that places humankind on a trajectory to homestead Mars and become a two-planet species. In August 2015, Aldrin, in association with the Florida Institute of Technology, presented a master plan for astronauts with a tour of duty of 10 years to colonize Mars before the year 2040. Here's a clip on that subject from the 2016 interview of Buzz. But we have pressing things right now, and that's uh, how, <laughs> how do we uh, get the other nations together doing things that are needed to have the confidence to then go and put together a base on Mars. And, and you can't do that from the Earth. You can do the slow moving things close together, but it'll take time. Now, if you put people at the moon of Mars, it's much better but it's costly to get people there. And, and uh, to have people at 
the moon of Mars bringing, bringing pieces that are a mile apart, that's valuable time doing things that we could have done from Earth if we take enough time to do that. And there are ways of being able to space out the launches and use launchers from all nations to be able, one nation just couldn't do uh, the things that are necessary to, to build up uh, a location on Mars that you would be confident of landing and, and staying there for several years. Uh, some other people could come and you could come back. There, there are a lot of things that really should be done before the first people go down. And it is so much more efficient without going into the details. Two rovers on either side in five years accomplished a certain amount. The, the project manager said, manager said what they did in five years could have been done in one week if we had human intelligence in orbit so that we could control things with a second time delay instead of 15 minutes. On that 2016 interview, Buzz also expressed his views on commercial spaceflight. The, uh, the, the government spacecraft right from the beginning, we didn't have any comparison, but they were not cheap. Uh, and if there had been uh, some company able to put something together, it would have been rather expensive to do that competing uh, with the government. But, but we've uh, worked it so that the government can help companies put together a spacecraft and they'll have a contract to then deliver people to the space station. Uh, you start with delivering cargo first. Uh, and we're in the process of uh, doing that now with, with uh, two companies, and it'll be three pretty soon. Uh, and then there are some contracts already for uh, SpaceX and, uh, and also Boeing to take people up the station. Uh, we don't have the shuttle anymore. And we don't have the commercial, and we don't have the government uh, Orion. Now, uh, when it was decided in beginning of '04 to uh, not fly the shuttle past 2010, we assumed that in seven years we could come up with something, but it's not there yet, and it probably won't be for um, until 2021, maybe. Uh, so that means that if the commercial companies can begin to take people up, then we won't have to use the Russian Soyuz. Right now, we're, we're paying 20, 70 million or more for each astronaut to go up to a space station that we've invested $100 billion in. That's not very smart. How did we get here? Well, we need to look back and see what it is 
and I've got a think tank underway. We're just looking for a little uh, funding, but we're ready to go to begin to look back at good things, not so good at all. Buzz continued his exploration in December 2016. He visited the Edmondson Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica as part of a tourist group, but he fell ill and was evacuated, first to McMurdo Station and from there to Christchurch, New Zealand, where he was reported to be in stable condition. Aldrin's visit at the age of 86 made him the oldest person to ever reach the South Pole. Buzz made his mark on pop culture as well. In 1993, he produced a computer strategy game called Buzz Aldrin's Race into Space. To further promote space exploration and to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the first lunar landing, Aldrin teamed up with Snoop Dogg, Quincy Jones, Soldier Boy to create the rap single and video Rocket Experience with proceeds from video and song sales to benefit Aldrin's non-profit foundation, Share Space. Aldrin has voiced parody versions of himself in two animated series, The Simpsons episode titled Deep Space Homer, in which he accompanies Homer Simpson on a trip into space as part of NASA's plan to improve its public appearance, and the Futurama episode titled Cold Warriors. In 2011, Aldrin appeared as himself in the film Transformers Dark of the Moon, where he explains to Optimus Prime and the Autobots that the Apollo 11 mission also discovered a Cybertronium ship on the moon whose existence was concealed from the public. In 2012, he made a cameo appearance in the Japanese drama film Space Brothers, also in 2012, Aldrin appeared as himself in the Big Bang Theory episode, The Holographic Excitation, which aired on October 25, 2012. Aldrin also lent his voice talents to the 2012 video game Mass Effect 3, playing a stargazer who appears in the game's final scene. Books Co-authored by Aldrin include Return to Earth, 1973, Men from Earth, 1989, Reaching for the Moon, 2005, Look to the Stars, 2009, and Magnificent Desolation, 2009. He has also co-authored with John Barnes the science fiction novels Encounter with Tiber, 1996, and The Return, 2000. His book, Mission to Mars, was published in May 2013, and in April of 2016, he released his latest book, No Dream is Too High. Aldrin has earned many awards, I will name a few, Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross, Air Medal, Air Force Commendation, Outstanding Unit Award, Presidential Medal of Freedom, NASA Distinguished Service Medal, NASA Exceptional Service Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Korean Service Medal, Presidential Unit Citation Korea, United Nations Korea Medal, Korean War Service Medal. 
Civilian awards and decorations include the Robert J. Collier Trophy, the Dr. Robert H. Goddard Memorial Trophy, and the Harmon Trophy. Aldrin and his Apollo 11 crewmates were the 1999 recipients of the Langley Gold Medal from the Smithsonian Institution. The crater on the moon near the Apollo 11 landing site and asteroid 6470 are named in his honor. In 1994, Aldrin was anonymously honored on a United States postage stamp. In 2001, President Bush appointed Aldrin to the Commission on the Future of the United States Aerospace Industry. Aldrin is on the National Space Society's Board of Governors and has served as the organization's chairman. Aldrin is an inductee of the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame and the National Aviation Hall of Fame, in 2006, the Space Foundation awarded Aldrin its highest honor, the General James E. Hill Lifetime Space Achievement Award. For contributions to the television industry, Aldrin was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2009, President Obama signed legislation conferring the Congressional Gold Medal upon Aldrin and his Apollo 11 crewmates, Neil Armstrong and Mike Collins. In 2015, Aldrin was named as the Chancellor of the International Space University. In 2016, Aldrin's hometown, Middle School in Montclair, New Jersey, was renamed the Buzz Aldrin Middle School. Today, Aldrin is a one-man think tank, designing everything from new launch vehicles to scenarios for a return to the moon. He spends his days networking with engineers, space advocates, and others who share his vision. Aldrin admits it isn't easy to make a living and that he is probably too outspoken for most aerospace consulting work. In 1992, he explained, quote, I don't want to tell the client what he wants to hear. I want to tell them what I think, End quote. Instead of a livelihood, Aldrin calls his work an expensive hobby. As much as possible, he offsets his expenses by making personal appearances. Today, with the struggles of the 1970s long behind him, Aldrin talks about his life with surprising openness and self-awareness. Quote, I'm lucky, Aldrin says. I'm alive, and I'm a better person for having gone through that. I got a chance to redo my life. End quote. Salutations from the Space Coast. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode 205 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11 Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin Part 2. I would like to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and download every episode of the podcast on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my moon emoji donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row. 
Thanks, Moon Emoji donors, for your continued support. I had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. Once again, I want to give credit to the Science Museum in London where most of those audio clips came from. That was an interview with Buzz in 2016, about 47 years after Apollo 11. I think it must have taken a different kind of courage for Buzz to admit his problems with depression and alcoholism publicly. Remember, this was the early 1970s. Astronauts were considered superhuman, A-OK, the best and the brightest. He was the second person to walk on the moon. Depression and alcoholism were stigmatized back then, much more than they are today. He had to swallow a lot of pride to admit that publicly, and to me, that is admirable. I believe Aldrin's honesty probably encouraged others to seek out treatment. So, what do you do as an encore for walking on the moon? Aldrin's greatest achievement was made relatively early in his life, and it took him a while to figure out what to do with his life after the moon. Of course, he was not the only astronaut that struggled with that. But, in the end, he figured it out. He's quite intelligent, you know. Okay, I posted some pictures and audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was re- pleased to receive one donation to support the podcast over the past week. Jonathan A. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. That makes our total number of Patreons at 109, and our overall number of donors is at 153, with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of the year. For those of you who have not donated yet in 2017, please keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you are enjoying this content and can afford to help fund it, please consider donating. I would really like to get this podcast funded, at least to cover all the Apollo missions. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time donation of $10 at the Vostok level, or you can sign up for Patreon for as little as $1 per month, sort of like a voluntary subscription. To make a donation, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on one of the links at the top right side of the page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website, spacerockethistory.com, based on their donation level. I was pleased to see the podcast received another five-star rating on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Noah3Battle for the very kind review and the all-important five-star rating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks for those who have already done so. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will have an encore episode as I return the podcast, myself and Mrs. SRH, to the foothills and also deal with an equipment failure. Yes, I had a monitor go out this week. (laughs) When I podcast from my camper, I use my MacBook Pro with an external monitor, 
That way I can read the script on the big monitor and run GarageBand on the laptop display. Well, Monday the monitor failed. I guess it just would not power up anymore. I guess it was uh, bounced around too much or something. It was. I looked at it carefully. It was made in 2010, and I think I bought it used off of eBay. I tend to do those kind of things. So I can probably find another one off eBay when I get home. So keep in mind, next week's episode will be an encore presentation. But I promise it will be something relevant, like Aldrin's first space flight, maybe. Hmm. In personal news, I talked last week about telling you about my visit to the Kennedy Space Center. It's going to take several podcast episodes to get that complete, but I thought I would start this week. And first of all, I would I would say that Kennedy Space Center is probably the best of the NASA centers to visit. If you only have time to visit one center, perhaps you're coming from Europe or somewhere other than the United States, I would pick Kennedy as the first one to visit. Now, I haven't visited the center since 2010, so there were a lot of improvements that I had not seen. When you visit the Kennedy Space Center, the first thing you need to consider is how much time you have to spend there. For me, I had a couple of weeks and wanted to see everything, so I chose the annual pass, which was about, I think, 139 per person. There are other passes available that are much less expensive. You can check them out at the Kennedy Space Center website. There are also special tours that you can take for more money. And believe it or not, I took them all because I wanted to see everything. As of April 2017, this is what is included with a general admission ticket. First, it is the Kennedy Center bus tour. Now, what they will do is take you on a bus over to the Saturn V Center. That's the the only stop on the tour. But along the way, you can see things like the vehicle assembly building, It's so big you really can't miss the vehicle assembly building. (laughs) Launch pads, you can see those two, and the crawlers. And on the way over you can see the eagle's nest that has supposedly been there for 50 years. And you do get to see an eagle occasionally. There is a video presentation before you enter the center. So you get off the bus and you go to a video presentation. Then you exit the video and you move into the launch center. This is as it was in the Apollo era. You can see the control panels, computers, and all that stuff. And once you exit that, you go into the main center. And there is a Saturn V, displayed beautifully in air-conditioned comfort. The stages are separated, and you can get a good look at all of them. And there's also a lunar module hanging off the ceiling. And there was a very nice tribute to uh, the Apollo 1 crew. There you can walk through that. And you can touch a moon rock. And you can view moon dust on Alan Shepard's lunar suit. And they have Gene Cernan's prototype EVA suit. 
and they have Jim Lovell's Apollo 13 flight suit. They have a lunar rover. They have the Apollo 14 command module, just to name a few of the things that are in that building. And they have a place to eat there, too. Once you are finished looking at everything, you can take the bus back to the visitor center. It runs about every 15 minutes. Another bus show up and it will take you over. On the next episode, 206, I will tell you about the things that are located at the visitor center. And you can do these things in any order you want to do them on. So you don't have to go to the Saturn V Center first. That's just a way of doing it. Okay, on that note, that's about all I have for this week, and keep in mind we'll have an encore episode next week. And so long for now. <laughs>